the sky lit up brighter than than any daytime she had ever seen because it did produce more light than the sun. The explosion did. And this ash fell from the sky for days afterwards. This is where we meet, sharing conversations from New Mexico and beyond. I'm Chelsea Reedy, and this show is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Taos Center for the Arts would like to recognize that it operates on the homelands of the Red Willow people of Taos Pueblo. We'd like to honor the importance of Native and Indigenous cultures within our community and within the land we live, learn, and exist on. It was 5.29 a.m. on July 16, 1945, in the New Mexico desert, that the U.S. Army detonated the first atomic bomb developed through the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project, authorized under President Roosevelt in 1942, sought to combine various research efforts to weaponize nuclear energy and win the war. Owning a ranch east of Santa Fe in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, it was Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer's familiarity with New Mexico and recommendation that moved the project to New Mexico. After surveilling a variety of locations, the remoteness of Los Alamos would provide the secrecy the project desired. Inspired by John Donne's poems, Hymn to God, My God, In My Sickness, and Holy Sonnets, Batter My Heart, Three-Personed God, Oppenheimer found inspiration for naming the testing site Trinity. Oppenheimer wrote to military director, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves, quote, there is a poem of John Donne written just before his death, which I know and love. And so this site, where the intense heat of man's first nuclear explosion would transmute sand into glass, would forever be known as Trinity. And with a thunderous roar on July 16th, a blinding light visible for 200 miles, a mushroom cloud some 40,000 feet high, the world's first atomic bomb was detonated here in New Mexico. The U.S. Army would publicly attribute the sound to a mere ammunition explosion, and nearby residents were never informed of the site's dangers, often picnicking in the area shortly after the detonation. It was only after the world's second atomic bomb, Little Boy, and the world's third atomic bomb, Fat Man, in August of 1945, that those in the surrounding towns and villages near what is now known as the White Sands Missile Range understood that what occurred a few months prior was the first atomic bomb. Today, Los Alamos National Laboratory's main responsibility is, quote, to ensure our nation's security through nuclear deterrence. This includes stewardship of our nation's nuclear weapons to assure our allies and deter our adversaries. The United States conducted nearly 200 atmospheric nuclear weapons development tests from 1945 to 1962, and in 1990, Congress passed the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, also known as RECA, which established a program to compensate folks for claims relating to atmospheric nuclear testing and uranium industry employment. RECA does not, however, extend to those affected by the Trinity test site, including the village of Tularosa and the Mescalero Apache Reservation. On today's show, we speak with Tina Cordova, the granddaughter of a resident of Tularosa during the first atomic bomb and co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, an organization that seeks to bring attention to the victims of the first nuclear blast. Here's the conversation. So on July 16, 1945, the world's first atomic bomb was exploded, and this took place in southern central New Mexico in the Tularosa Basin. This area was called the Trinity Test Site by scientists. 
Um, but actually, you know, people lived around here, um, including your family is from this area and in proximity to where the bomb was exploded. I wonder if you would be up for describing that morning uh, on July 16th in 1945 and maybe what it was like for your grandparents. Having spoken to my grandmother and then having spoken to countless other people throughout the 17 years that I've been doing this work, it is pretty incredible what has been described to me. My grandmother said that what she remembered the most is that the sky lit up brighter than than any daytime she had ever seen because it did produce more light than the sun. The explosion did. She said what she remembered most, though, it was July, it was hot, and this ash fell from the sky for days afterwards. And she said she just remembered that they had to be cleaning up a lot afterwards. She said it was terrible because we had our windows open. We had no choice, no refrigeration. We, we didn't have electricity. There was no running water. And so she said she remembered the doors and the windows were open because it was summertime. And she said there was nothing to obstruct um, the, the ash from coming into their homes. And so they had to do this cleanup on a constant basis. Other people have told me that they remembered wetting bedsheets and hanging them in the windows anyway to sort of produce a little bit of cooling in their homes. But they said what they remember around the time of Trinity is that those bed sheets were gray from the ash and that they were rinsing them out constantly because these bed sheets just got coated in this ash that was flying in the, in the air. But people have told me that the blast was enormous and that they thought it was the end of the world. So many people have told me that they were gathered up by their mothers in groups and they knelt down and started to pray. Um, I had a woman tell me a story one time about how her grandmother, when she was very old and had dementia, would tell the story over and over and would say, did I ever tell you about the day they, they dropped the bomb in New Mexico? And she said, you know, and she would tell the story over and over, and it had had such a huge impact on her that when she didn't remember anything else, it was the story she would tell over and over. I've been told by people that they, their mothers w were unable to sleep with the lights off after that because it had such an enormous impact. Many people told me they were alone with their mothers because their fathers were still off serving in the Pacific or their fathers were off working on the railroad or other places. And so it was women alone with their children. And it just had huge impact. They experienced the, the, the light first, the, the shock wave, uh, the heat. People have told me they felt the heat uh, all the way to where they were in places like Tularosa and Carrizozo and Socorro. It was huge. And I always tell everybody, you know, if, some, if you and I experience something like that today, because we live in such a real-time society, we would be able to look at our phones or at our computers and know within minutes what had happened. But there was no explanation for anyone. They all knew it was maybe one of the biggest things they'd ever experienced. It, it took place before dawn. A lot of people were already awake, getting ready for the workday. And we have to remember that life was very different back then. People were working long hours during the summer, uh, because when you don't have a refrigerator, you have to spend a lot of your time producing food for your family. So, you know, the, the stories are profound. 
the the ash falling from the sky is it runs through all of these stories and how it coded everything and uh I, that's a very important part of the story by the way as it turns out and this um in terms of it's interesting thinking back what you're saying to that time no phones no internet no computers and that also being connected to the secrecy around the project the Manhattan project where even some government officials didn't know that this was going on or planned. And then obviously the people who lived in the area were not told. And then after it happened, we're still not told. And so uh, do you have a sense about when that information came out and what that was like for people understanding that it was a nuclear bomb that was blown up near them? You're absolutely right. People had no means of communication. There were no telephones, no TVs. Some people had radios. They didn't warn anybody before or afterwards. One, one journalist was present. He was told to write several different renditions uh, for the newspaper. One, to include that there was loss of life um, because they didn't know whether they would ignite the atmosphere. They were taking bets on that up until the last minute. The rendition that they finally did publish basically stated that an ammunition dump that was out on the Alamogordo bombing range, because that's what it was called back then, had exploded, but there had been no loss of life and no real threat. And so people just accepted that for what it was, and no one was warned before or afterwards. And no one had, even afterwards, when they said it was an atomic bomb, a nuclear device, people didn't know what that meant. Now, the scientists knew full well, they knew ahead of time, but the average person didn't understand what a nuclear device meant what they didn't understand what radiation meant what fallout was what radioactive isotopes were it wasn't until much later um, that people started to ask questions about exactly what is this radiation and exactly what does it do to people and i know that it was much much later i i know that as a child there was talk about it when i grew up in the 60s I remember hearing people talking about how there were all these people that were sick and they believed it was as a result of the bomb, but nobody came back to, at least that we knew of, no one ever came back to study any part of it. Uh, there was never, has never been an epidemiological study dedicated to following the people who lived so close to Trinity. Um, so yeah, they, there was not a, a realization. And when we first started this work 17 years ago, it's amazing how people were literally grateful for the opportunity to come forward and learn more about this yeah. and understand it better and share their stories of how they were affected. And be acknowledged. And be acknowledged. Yeah. And you know how many times somebody has said to me, uh, they'll never come back. They're never going to do anything. They've never done anything. And I've had lots of people say, I just want them to apologize. And it's really interesting because throughout the years, the people in New Mexico have taken this on almost like martyrs. And it's so, uh, it's so unfortunate that we're willing to accept being relegated to nothingness so easily. Well, this brings, I think, us to 1990, when the U.S. Congress passed the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, also known as RECA, R-E-C-A, 
This act has compensated, I think, around 45,000 people, a combination of nuclear workers and also downwinders, which is a term describing people who have lived near nuclear test sites and may have been exposed to deadly radioactive fallout. Here's the thing. Uh, RICA does not cover families who are affected by the Trinity bomb uh, test in New Mexico. Why? I always say that's the $2.5 billion question because that's how much the claimants have received, um, $2.5 billion. And I have never been given a clear answer. But Chelsea, I think at some point we all have to recognize that New Mexico was long ago declared a sacrifice zone. Uh, the people here were never asked whether they wanted to participate in this process. And when I say sacrifice zone, we have the cradle to grave process taking place here. The cradle is the opening up of the earth and the extraction of uranium. New Mexico is the largest producer of uranium uh, in the United States. We have over a thousand abandoned uranium mines and mill sites in our, in, in, across Navajo lands, Laguna and Acoma Pueblo. The largest open pit mine is in Powati, Laguna Pueblo, 40 miles from Albuquerque. It's still there. I visited recently. I was so impacted by what I saw there that there is an open pit mine adjacent within half a mile of Powati Village where kids still live today. So we have the cradle, that's the extraction. Then we have the development and testing of nuclear devices. They freely dumped nuclear waste in the canyons around Los Alamos until the EPA was established. So for years and years and years, that waste got into the water table, obviously, flowed through those canyons into our rivers, our creeks and our rivers, and became part of our water. Um, and then, you know, we all know about Trinity, but there were three other nuclear devices detonated in New Mexico. In advance of Trinity to track fallout, they developed a smaller version that was detonated out at the Trinity site called the 100-ton test. It was laced with radiation so they could track fallout. And they knew, they knew ahead of time that Trinity was going to produce fallout and that those small towns all around Trinity were at risk. And then in the 70s, they detonated two other nuclear devices in New Mexico through the plowshares testing. Those tests were developed... Uh, for construction excavation, and one was tested near Farmington uh, to bring up natural gas, frack for natural gas, and it worked, but all the natural gas was radioactive. They couldn't contain it. It vented all over our state and the states in the Four Corners area, and then they, they also detonated a device uh, near Carlsbad in advance of the establishment of WIP. I'm certain to sort of detect what would happen in the salt flats there if they ever had a true disaster. Um, and so the testing and development, and then we are the only place that has a permanent repository for waste at WIP. And now we're under consideration for a repository to store high level waste brought here on rail cars from all across the country. It's insane. And so we're a sacrifice zone. We also, by the way, as a matter of fact, this is a very well-known, a very well-known fact. New Mexico was downwind of the Nevada test site through the final above-ground testing, and probably through the below-ground testing too. They just vent less, but they have maps that show where the fallout went. And the Nevada test site fallout came to New Mexico, and they compensate people that live in Arizona. But the compensation ends at the New Mexico border, and those downwinders that live in Arizona 
are taken care of, but people who live in New Mexico are not. And I always say there's not a lead curtain that divides us. And if you live five feet into Arizona, you're taken care of. If you live five feet into New Mexico, you are not a delta of 10 feet. And, and that goes to show how arbitrary the bill was. Why we were left out, I was told recently, no one was looking out for you. And I always say, really? Well, when they established this in 1990, we had two U.S. senators just like everybody else. Right. So where were they? And, and I, I don't have an answer for you. Mm -hmm. um, but now, you know, now there's, there's no excuse. We were the first people ever exposed to radiation any place in the world. We were the original downwinders. And, and so blatantly left out of RICA. And one of the things that I've heard you talk about before is, you know, most of the people affected by this are indigenous and Hispanic people. And this brings up the question of environmental racism and kind of just, um, well, like you're saying, like treating New Mexico as just this <laughs> dumping ground and a, and a place that all of this is fine. Uh, it doesn't matter. And I wonder if you have further thoughts on that. You know, New Mexico is a minority-majority state, and so obviously just based on that, the people who were most affected by all the processes that have taken place here, starting with the uranium mining, have always been indigenous people, people of color, you know, Nuevo Mexicanos, um, and we, you know, we, the preponderance of people here affected are those people, and I always say if you take a look at uh, the counties that are included in RICA, as an example, the preponderance of those people are not. But I absolutely believe that that is one of the reasons New Mexico is a sacrifice zone, because I think that they felt like the people here were expendable. To be able to do some of the things that were done here and walk away, because one of the other parts of this history is that, and we this just came to light within the last few years, there was a spike in infant mortality after Trinity in New Mexico and babies were dying and the government was contacted by a healthcare worker who said, do you know of anything? Is there anything we can do? Because nothing we're doing is working. And they just decided to lie and uh, look the other way and allow our babies to die. And a lot of them were babies who died uh, on Native lands, Native American babies, a lot of them. We've done the deep dive into the to the into this now. A lot of them were Hispanic children living in these small villages all across New Mexico, and that's unconscionable that they allowed our babies to die and didn't intercede. If for me, this is the worst part of the story. We will not walk away from exploring this further and calling this out because somebody should come back and address how it was okay for, for children to be sacrificed in this process. So yes, there's a level of environmental racism. There always has been. And if you look at where testing has been done all across the world, it's the same story. I have participated in Zoom conferences with other downwinders. And I'll never forget two years ago, I was invited to participate in one. And there was a gentleman from Kazakhstan. And I was looking at him on the Zoom. And I was thinking, he looks like my cousin's from Tularosa. He's dark-skinned like I am. I had no clue. And the Aborigines people from Australia, same thing. And then you look at the French Polynesian and the Pacific Islanders. So it's just, you know, it, it, there's always been a level of environmental racism associated with where all governments have decided to do their testing. 
So related to the RICA bill, uh, just a few days ago, President Biden uh, signed an extension to the bill, and it was due, I think, to um, expire or sunset in July. And so um, one of the things that you and your group have been working towards is to make sure that that bill was extended. Um, now, the extension of the bill is only that. It does not add anyone new to the program. And can you explain why... Okay, great. This was a good victory. Let's say the extension of the bill, but really what needs to come next? Because Senator Lujan and Senator Crapo worked so hard, along with Representative Ledger Fernandez and Representative Burgess Owens, they had to find a process uh, for getting that extension. And it meant in the Senate to, to do it via unanimous consent. And then in the House on uh, a, cons a consent vote. And what that meant is everybody in D.C., including our president, now knows about RICA. And that's the best thing to come out of this extension. I'm telling you, we have, I've worked on this for 12 years. We've had bills entered in U.S. Congress for 12 years, and we have never seen this much movement. Uh, the amount of movement we've seen over the last year and a half is the most we've ever seen. We've seen hearings. Um, I've testified in Congress three times now. Uh, we saw the vote for the extension. They had to fight to get everybody on board because, like I said, it had been blocked before. Uh, everybody knows about RICA now. That is progress. That is absolute progress. This will give us two years to now work on getting enough Republican support out of the U.S. Senate. If they introduce the bill tomorrow in the House, it would pass. It would pass the House. But that would be for not, because we have to reach cloture in the Senate. Otherwise, one single senator can kill it, and we're, and we're dead in the water. So right now, we're working every day. I work on this every day. We're working every day um, with staff members to Republican members of the Senate. We're always formulating strategies. We're always trying to figure out an angle. Um, and we're just, you know, we remain hopeful. Um, because we have seen some progress, but we're not there yet, and we have a ways to go. So, Tina, you're an activist and one of the main organizers of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, working on all of this that you've just described. And part of this work is, is not only to tell the story of the, of the nuclear testing in New Mexico, uh, organize political action. One of the things you're interested in as well, and you mentioned this earlier, and you've, you've heard this from families, is also being interested in an apology. And with all of that, I, I wonder if you would be up for sharing kind of what the biggest challenge is for you in all of this for in the last 12 years and for the, the group of people that you work with. Part of our challenge is always trying to keep our minds straight around how our government has so readily looked away from us. You know, I always say we're American citizens hardworking, tax-paying American citizens that pledge allegiance to the same flag as, for example, the 9-11 first responders and victims. They have a fund set up. That, that fund has paid out over $7 billion in, in a very short period of time to 5,500 claimants. Do you see the false equivalency there between that fund, $7 billion, to 5,500 people versus $2.5 billion to 45,000 people. And so for us, it's very difficult to understand how our government has so easily and readily looked away from us and said, 
as I said before, that we were relegated to nothingness and we remain so. I think the most difficult part is that we have to remain motivated and we have to remain focused and we have to remain with a certain level of energy. And sometimes it's hard on people mentally and physically to hear these stories so often and then to tell the stories so often. You know, I have to tell my own personal story in interacting with staff members to Congress. I probably tell this story on average uh, in any given month at least 20 times. I will continue to do this work. I started out on this journey with a lot of people that aren't here any longer, including my own dad. I will continue to do this work until the time that we finally get RECA passed for the downwinders of New Mexico and the post-71 uranium workers, or until the day that they put me in the ground. Uh, it will be my life's work. I've done many other things. I'm a successful businesswoman, but none of that counts the way this will. And people don't realize uh, the horrendous negative economic impact this has had on families and communities. And let me just share with you the story that I hear all over, whether I'm in uranium mining country or in Tularosa or Carrizozo or Socorro, it goes something like this. I had a good job with a retirement. I had health insurance. My wife and I were looking forward to my retirement. We were going to travel. We were going to have plenty um, to do that. Uh, but I always had this nagging pain in my abdomen and it went on for years. There's no doctor where I live. So I put it off. And then one day my wife said, I'm making you an appointment with a doctor in Las Cruces. And she took me to see a gastroenterologist. They ran some tests. And then they told me I have stage four colon cancer. They sent me to see an oncologist in El Paso. And uh, I've been having chemo five times a week. And I tried to keep working and I did for a while. And then I just couldn't take it any longer. And I lost my job. I lost my health insurance. I I've spent all my retirement. I've taken out all the equity in my house. I've maxed out three credit cards. I sold my car. Um, now my kids are sending me Visa gift cards so I can buy gas to get to El Paso. And some days I wish I would just die so I wouldn't be a financial burden to my family anymore. If we get RECA passed, it will reverse that because people will be able to apply on behalf of deceased loved ones. And if we can get the the RECA restitution increased from 50000 to 150000 I always tell people, imagine if just 100 people in a town like Carrizozo can apply and be, be granted restitution, that's $15 million. $15 million hasn't dropped into that community this way ever. And not only that, but it will establish what are called RECEP clinics, radiation exposure screening um, and education program clinics all, all across our state where everybody can go to get screened for cancer. You know, all these small towns that don't have doctors, people would be able to travel to one of these clinics and for free be screened. And then above and beyond that, it would also extend the very best healthcare coverage available any place in the world to people who get approved for the program. So my friend that contacted me this week that I grew up with, he would be able to get that kind of coverage. He'd never have to pay a copayment. He, if he needed round-the-clock nursing care, they would provide it. If he needed somebody to cook meals for him, they would provide it. It changes everything. It changes everything. And it's restorative um, and it's transformational. It will be transformational for the state of New Mexico because it won't just apply to those people that lived 45 miles from the test site. It doesn't draw any boundaries. 
It doesn't say only those people that live within the 50-mile radius are accepted. No, because we know radiation went everywhere. They tracked the fallout from Trinity all the way, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. It went around the world. It damaged film in a Kodak plant in Indiana. So what did it do to the people that live 50 miles away, 150 miles away? Coming up on June 16th, uh, this is the anniversary of when Trinity bomb was exploded. Uh, there will be a candlelight vigil in Tularosa, and this has been going on for the last 12 years. I wonder if you could describe what that's like. Fred Tyler and his wife Kathy and I conceived of the idea of this candlelight vigil 12 years ago when Fred was still alive to um, memorialize all the people we'd lost. And I remember when we first conceptualized this idea, I really didn't know what it would transform into. It is the most somber but beautiful tribute to the people that we've lost in our community. We have over 800 names that we light luminarias in memory of. These are people that have died. We have so many more. If we could go door to door, I always say we wouldn't light 800 luminarias. We'd light thousands. But these are just the people that have passed away. And then we do a prayer vigil with those who are living with or survived cancer. And it's a beautiful event. We hold it in the evening. This year, it will actually be on the actual anniversary, July 16th, which is Saturday in Tularosa in the evening at the Little League Park. And we'll have a town hall meeting that day from two to four at the community center. And the process is to make sure that these people are never forgotten. That my father, as an example, that at least once a year, his name is read out in the little village where he grew up. That everybody who had a loved one that has died as a result of cancer, likely associated to their overexposure to radiation, that their names will ring out in that town at least once a year, and they will never be forgotten. A special thank you to Tina Cordova for sharing the impact of the Trinity site on our communities in New Mexico and for her continued work to bring reparation to these communities. Where We Meet comes from Taos Center for the Arts in Taos, New Mexico, and is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Producers include Colette LaBeouf, Chelsea Reedy, Elise Morion, Ariana Cubillos-Vogler, and Joshua Aragon. Research and writing by Jacqueline Paul. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. On Where We Meet, we share conversations from New Mexico and beyond. Thanks for listening. Be well. Thank you.